You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Marvin O'Connell, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame, and thanking you for continuing our discussion of the history of the Catholic Church. Most specifically, we've been looking at the very earliest years, trying to see how it is that the historian's discipline can help us to appreciate and understand more fully the beginnings of our religion and perhaps how those beginnings impinge upon the way we practice it today. By the year 70 AD, some 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection, all the apostles were dead, except the beloved disciple, St. John, who tradition tells us lived on to a great age. It is this disciple who alone among his colleagues had had the courage to stand by the cross when Jesus died. It was this disciple who took into his own household at Jesus' instructions from the cross, Mary, Jesus' mother. This, the beloved disciple who wrote three of the most beautiful letters ever written about the Christian religion, but about Jesus, about the human situation as found in the New Testament, and who also wrote the most obscure, most difficult, and sometimes frustrating, even infuriating books of the New Testament, that is the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation. But to return to the point, the disappearance of the apostles from the Christian scene was a moment of great peril for the infant church. The apostles had had a unique and irreplaceable function. And so the question immediately arises as to how is this combination of doctrines and morals and recommendations and supernatural activities, how is this going to survive without Jesus himself, but also without those who were closest to him? It is not difficult to establish in a documentary kind of way the importance of the apostles and the necessity that their function not disappear if the church itself were not to disappear. Jesus had chosen them for very distinct purposes, primarily to, as he said, to be his witnesses before the peoples of the world. And he said more than once, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. He also said to them, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. It was with them 
that Jesus celebrated his last Passover and his first sacramental Eucharistic act at the Last Supper. And he had said to them, assembled around him, do this in memory of me. These were the men whom Jesus had picked out and had personally commissioned to preach the good news of the gospel everywhere and to baptize all peoples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those who receive you, he said, receive me. To them alone had Jesus given the ultimate authority, his own authority, really, using the language familiar to Jewish tradition, and of course he was talking to Jews when he talked to the apostles. I assure you, he said, you will sit upon the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And upon them, the Spirit had descended in the midst of a huge wind and tongues of fire on the first Pentecost, an action which had converted them from timid backsliders to reckless, dauntless advocates of the truth, fearful really of nothing, not even of death. The sources don't allow us, however, to know very much in detail about what the apostles did. I mean, in specific details, what I'm trying to say. Tradition says that St. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, preached to the people of Crete, the Greek island of Crete. A legend, probably not credible, but nevertheless, one which has persisted through many, many centuries, that St. Thomas, the doubter, the one who said that he would believe in the resurrection only when he put his finger into the nail prints and his hand into the wound of Jesus' side. St. Thomas allegedly preached the gospel as far away from home as India. We do know a great deal about the missions and missionary activity of St. Paul. We know it from the epistles he wrote and also from the narrative in the Acts of the Apostles. We know from those sources also some, but not nearly as much, about St. Peter's missions. We have two letters of St. Peter, and the Acts of the Apostles does supply us with a description of many of his activities. But this much we do know that the apostles enjoyed spectacular success. By the time they died, the religion that they had preached had taken root all across the Roman Empire, particularly in the eastern half of the Mediterranean basin, specifically the places where St. Paul was most active. But now they were gone. And those Christians who survived them had to face that fact and had to find some way in which, with the approval of providence, that the apostolic character could be maintained. That apostolic character central to their belief.
the sort of thing we still attest to when we say the creed at Mass every Sunday, that we believe in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. How is that to be accomplished? Well, from an historian's point of view, disappointingly, the sources let us down. We don't really know what happened in, let's say, in the 20 years between 70 and 90 AD, between the death of all the apostles save St. John and the emergence of a recognizable Christian structure different from every other structure in the latter year. What took place, one is tempted to say, was a silent evolution. It probably wasn't silent at the time, but silent for us, since we're not able to reconstruct it in any detail. But what we do know from the pages of the New Testament was that St. Paul, and no doubt the other apostles, had charged various of their followers, confidants, disciples, to exercise apostolic authority in those churches which the apostle founded, but which the apostle, always on the go, particularly true of St. Paul, was absent from. We have these passages in our sources, the source being the New Testament, wherein St. Paul is described laying his hands on his two most cherished disciples, Titus and Timothy, and charging them to act in his behalf while he is gone from Ephesus or Corinth or whichever other of the Christian communities that he, through his preaching, had founded. And here, of course, in this laying on of hands, we see the germ of what you and I have come to call the sacrament of holy orders, as it was applied to people like Titus and Timothy. But as I say, we can't trace this in detail from one Christian community to the next. But what we do know is that by the year 90, or roughly then, the transitional process was complete. And perhaps more important, because this testifies to to the consistency with which the Christians of that first century saw this development, the consistency with Revelation, it was universally accepted. In every Christian community, from Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi in the east to Rome in the west, the same structure had emerged. There was at the head of each of these communities a bishop. A bishop who claimed, and it was accorded to him, the right to exercise apostolic authority over that community. The bishop was aided by presbyters or elders and deacons. But these spoke only in support of the bishop. When the bishop spoke, the presbyters and the deacons were obliged to follow his directives. The bishop's job was primarily to preside at the Eucharist, to preach the gospel, and to settle any points of doctrinal disagreement that might arise. 
He was exercising then apostolic authority. And he was doing what Titus and Timothy had done, even in St. Paul's lifetime. And now he and his colleagues across the Roman world were doing so in the name of the whole apostolic college. The Greek word for bishop is episkopos. And so we use the word episcopal to describe this structure. It is a structure then that can date itself back to before the year 100, and a structure which, of course, continues down to our own day. Now, the mandate of the apostles had been universal. St. Paul and St. Peter and St. Andrew and St. Thomas and all the rest of them had literally exercised apostolic authority wherever they went. The big difference here in this silent evolution that I'm trying to describe to you was that the apostolic authority was now spatially restricted. That is, the bishop of Philippi exercised apostolic authority only in that particular community, or to put it another way, in that particular district or region which accepted him as the apostolic successor. This is what is meant, indeed, by that expression, the apostolical succession, that down through these 20 centuries now, this apostolic character has been passed on by the laying of hands from one generation to the next. It is not the universal and universally applicable authority of the apostle himself, but rather this restricted, regionally restricted authority. What we believe is, when we say that part of the creed, we believe in the apostolic church, is that indeed this is manifest in our time and in our place and in this particular man, the bishop, the apostolic authority continues. And that in turn brings this man in this place at this time back to the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked with his apostles and instructed them himself. One last little point on this matter. Uh, the Roman imperial jurisdiction had a lot of subdivisions, as you can imagine, being such a vast entity. Well, one of the subdivisions was called a diocese under the civil administration of the empire. That name was borrowed uh, by the early Christian community to apply to this restricted area in which the apostolic character was maintained and the apostolic authority was asserted in a particular place. In tracing this development, a crucially important consideration is that of tradition. In our earlier discussion, we talked a bit about that very important word. And here again, it seems worthy of being brought forward. Traditio in Latin, from which tradition comes, means a passing on. And that literally was the job of this new Episcopal structure. That is, the bishop, when he presided at the Eucharist, when he preached the gospel, when he settled disputes, was at all times to understand 
that he acted under the impulsion of the apostolic character which had been passed on to him. It was not something that he invented. It was not something that he did in order to suit himself. It was not something that resulted from a welling up inside of piety or, or good-heartedness or, or any other positive thing you might imagine. He was not free to express his own idiosyncrasies. His job was to be faithful to what had been passed on to him. If you want to know what St. John, who was still alive when this structure was in place, if you want to know what he thought of some of the early bishops, whether or not they lived up to their mandate, whether or not they were faithful to their principles, whether or not that the tradition was, was adequately served by them, I refer you to the opening chapters of the Apocalypse. Uh, I said a few moments ago what an obscure and difficult book it is, and it is. But the opening chapters are clear enough where John is analyzing the activities of these, these people who now are expressing in their word and deed and lives the mandate of the apostles themselves. And who better to comment than the last surviving apostle? John also witnessed in his lifetime a parallel development. The Gospels left no doubt that Simon Peter was the chief of the Apostles. For all his rashness, and even despite his threefold denial of Christ on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus had clearly chosen him to be the unique leader of the Apostles. There are many references to this fact in the Gospels. Let me cite a couple of them. Jesus renamed Simon, which was his given name, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. He renamed him Peter, which means rock. And he said to him, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He also said, that it would be Peter's task, and this is particularly significant in the development which we're now trying to trace, that it would be Peter's job to strengthen his brethren, to give strength to his colleagues, would be another way of putting it, to bring backbone, if you like, to the other apostles. Most remarkable, isn't it, when you remember that Peter's own backbone had been somewhat suspect at a very crucial moment. And perhaps most touchingly of all, bearing in mind that threefold denial, was what Jesus said to Peter on the shore of the lake after the resurrection, a kind of dialogue which bears all sorts of emotional as well as doctrinal ramifications. Simon Peter, lovest thou me more than these, more than the others? And Simon Peter answered, you know that I, I love you. Feed my lambs, said Jesus. Then he said again, do you love me more than these? Yes, I do, said Peter. Feed my sheep, said Jesus. 
And finally, Simon Peter, dost thou love me more than these? Lord, thou knowest all things. Knowest that I love thee. And feed my lambs and feed my sheep. So there is obviously built in to the most basic Christian revelation this particular function which is within the apostolic framework but nevertheless is somehow different from it and, and somehow distinct from it and that is what the scriptures seem to suggest to us but Peter too was dead by the year 70 Tradition says that he was crucified on Vatican Hill upon the spot where the magnificent basilica that bears his name now stands. And archaeological research in recent times seems to confirm that that indeed was the place where he died and was buried, that his tomb has been discovered underneath the great basilica of St. Peter. Another tradition says, one that is much harder to substantiate, but has some emotional impact to it, was that Peter insisted that when they came to crucify him, that they should crucify him upside down because he was not worthy to die the way the master had died. How was the Petrine office, to use the technical term, for Peter's primacy. How was that to be maintained in the church? It was as necessary to maintain it if people were going to be faithful to the gospel revelation as was the larger apostolic character. And the answer to that is in the same way as the apostolic character was maintained. Before he died, Peter laid his hands upon a man called Linus, who became the second pope, if you like. A title which, by the way, did not emerge until many centuries later. More strictly correct is to say, the second bishop of Rome. We know nothing about Linus, except his name. We know nothing about his successor, a man called Cletus, except his name. So then, how can we reconstruct historically that this Petrine office had in fact been passed on and that that was a universally accepted datum of the Christian faith at this early date? Well, we have, as historians, two priceless sources, two priceless documents. The first one dates from the year 97. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, was a man called Clement, the first to bear that particular name, and so we call him, you'll be terribly surprised to hear, Clement I. Pope St. Clement I wrote a letter that has survived. It was not a private letter in the way in which you and I write to our friends, but more a public manifestation in the same way in which one speaks of St. Paul's letters to the churches in his time. What had happened was that a, a dispute had arisen within the Christian community in Corinth. 
Corinth must have been a, a raunchy place. They were always fighting among themselves. And as you remember, St. Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians, and a lot of what's in those letters is doctrinal teaching and moral exhortation, but a lot of it's also lambasting the Corinthians for their various public faults, and particularly their tendency to factionalism. Well, this had broken out again, and so Clement wrote this letter, and he wrote authoritatively. He wrote saying, I'm paraphrasing of course, now is the time for you people to settle down and we instruct you to settle your quarrels, to stop this bitter wrangling, which is a scandal to people all over Greece, and to live in accord with the truths that you know, the most fundamental of being, you must love your neighbor as yourself. That was the burden of the letter. It's, by the way, it's very elegantly written It's a, as a piece of of prose, it's quite a delight to read. But that's not the most important thing in our discussion. What is important is to bear in mind that Corinth had a bishop. That is, Corinth had somebody who, as we discussed it a few minutes ago, was carrying on the apostolic character that had been passed on to him. Apparently, he wasn't able to handle the situation. But whether or not he was able to do so, he hadn't done so. And therefore, Peter's successor as the chief of the apostles, as the spokesman for them, as he had been in the pages of the Acts of the Apostles constantly, now exercises that same authority. He speaks as Peter speaks, and he must be listened to. Well, theologians have dealt with this uh, material and have come up with various abstract and academic ways of expressing it, perhaps the most satisfactory one is this, that here before the year 100, we find a bishop of Rome who takes it for granted, and everybody else takes it for granted, that he has the right to intervene in any Christian community. If his judgment is that his authority must be exerted, then he does not hesitate to exert it. I remarked a moment ago that St. John was still alive when all this was happening, most likely still alive. Tradition suggests that he died sometime very soon after the year 100. So if that's the case, then he was alive when Clement intervened. This we do know. He was living in Ephesus, which was a town in what is now western Turkey, but was then a Greek town. And he was therefore closer to Corinth than Rome was, closer than Clement was. So reasonably you could say, well, why didn't John intervene? Why didn't he exercise his apostolic authority? Well, he didn't, that much we know. But perhaps there's more to it than that. Even though John was still alive, it was Peter's office as the chief of the apostles to intervene in this matter, and Clement spoke as Peter did. I'm reminded of an Easter hymn that we're probably all familiar with. Sons and daughters of the Lord, la-da-da-dee-da-da-da-da-dum, you know, you've heard it and sung it, I'm sure. But do you remember the second verse, which may throw a little light on the point I'm just making about John still being alive while the Petrine office is being exercised by somebody else. 
In the Gospel it says that when the women came back from the empty tomb to where the apostles were hiding and said, Jesus is gone, Peter and John left the hiding place and they started running toward the garden where the tomb was to see for themselves, of course. And St. John's Gospel is so wonderful in this respect, giving these little details. And in this instance, it says that John, who was the younger of the two, was running faster than poor old Peter, who was an older man and maybe like me had the beginnings of arthritis. And so John ran to the tomb and he came to it and he looked inside and he saw it was empty and then he saw the wrapping cloth sitting on a rock. But, and this is the point I'm trying to make, he didn't go in. He waited till Peter, no doubt huffing and puffing, came up the road and then John stepped aside and let Peter go in first because Peter's position was unique. Well, the hymn, written by somebody who obviously was not a master of English prose, ends like this. Peter was by John outrun, alleluia. Well, the point I think is clear enough. I spoke of two priceless documents. The other one comes eight years later, from the year 105. And it is a letter, again, when I say letter, I mean a formal, public kind of address to the Christians of Rome by a man named Ignatius, who was the Bishop of Antioch. By this time, the Roman persecutions had begun, a point we will return to in a few minutes. And Ignatius had been arrested in the Syrian city of Antioch, which was his home, but also it was the place where he was exercising his apostolical character. He was to be transported back to Rome, where he would be turned loose in that pit of sport and torture called the Roman Colosseum, the ruins of which still stand, and to be killed by wild animals. He knew that. He knew that was what was going to happen to him. Well, the soldiers, three or four soldiers who accompanied him on this trip from Antioch to Rome, which, given the transportation means available at the time, took some weeks, were maybe sorry for him, or maybe they liked him, or maybe they just didn't want to be troubled with him at night. But in any case, they traveled from place to place, and when they'd stop for the night, Ignatius was allowed to go to the local Christian community where they would feed him and give him a bed, and then the next day they'd start out again. So he ended up writing six letters that we know of, maybe more, but six that have survived as kind of thank you notes to these places where he had stopped on his way to Rome. They too, of course, are formal addresses filled with doctrinal exhortations and so forth, but they are also basically marks of courtesy on Ignatius's part. The seventh letter, however, is a little different. That's the one addressed to the Romans, to the Roman Christians. That wasn't addressed to thank them, but rather to tell them that he was, he was coming. And his major point in that letter is, as much as you love me, don't intervene in my behalf to try to save me from this terrible death I'm going to have to die. I look forward to it. I want to shed my blood for Christ. And, and in his name. By the way, 
the physical courage of these people is quite beyond my ability to understand. I don't know how you feel about it, but how would we be feeling if we were faced with such a fate? Well, the other thing he said in the letter was a more oblique reference to the Petrine office, but clear nevertheless. When he's talking about his desire to sacrifice himself for Christ and his plea that the Roman Christians don't try to stop this, he says, now I can't give you orders like St. Peter can, because St. Peter is an apostle, the prince of the apostles, and so I make a request of you. I can't order you as Peter, the founder of your church, could order you and continues to order you. This Ignatius, by the way, and was the first one and in these letters that have survived to use the word Catholic, a word which we now wear with great honor and great pride. And the word, of course, from its Latin root means universal or everywhere. And so when Ignatius was writing his letters, he talked about the Catholic Church, the Catholic community. He meant the everywhere church, the everywhere community. Well, it wasn't everywhere yet, but it was on its way. So what we find by the end of the first century is the essential structure of the church as it has been maintained ever since. The apostolical character manifested in the office and performance of the individual bishops and the Petrine office as exercised by the Bishop of Rome. Now one thing we should make very clear, of course, right away, and that is that the enormously developed and complex system that has evolved out of these rather simple principles was not in effect then. For example, the other bishops were not chosen by the Bishop of Rome. They were chosen by their local community. Some sort of primitive election, again, the details of which are not altogether clear to us. The point that should be made, however, is this, that there's nothing inconsistent with what prevails officially in the Catholic Church today with what we see here already in its very close beginnings by the year 100. Indeed, I would go further, and I'd be in very good company doing this, very good intellectual and theological company, I mean, to say that clearly what we have now is a development of what they had then. I used the word college in passing a little while ago, and before we leave this subject, it seems worth pausing for a moment to look at that word, college and collegiality in connection with this structural development that I've been talking about. Particularly since this terminology has been very fashionable among Catholics since uh, the Second Vatican Council of 30 years ago. When you and I hear the word college, we, in our American context, think of an institution of higher learning. But the Roman word collegium from which, of course, college comes, does not really refer to education, only except in the most peripheral way. A collegium, or a college, was much more akin to a corporation in our modern sense, or to spell it out a little bit, an association 
of like-minded people who were intent on securing some agreed object. And it is in that sense that we speak of the college of bishops and the collegiality that exists among Catholic bishops and that taken together they form the authoritative apostolic body. And of course included in that, as we have seen in the case of Clement particularly, the Bishop of Rome has a particularly important position that the integrity, the fullness, the, the complete fulfillment of the Christian objective, the complete teaching, or again to use a technical word if you'll pardon my doing so, the magisterium of the church is indeed a collegiate activity on the part of all those who share in the apostolical succession. But the integrity of the college is not taken away if one or two bishops are not part of it or have gone astray in some fashion, the way St. John describes some of the very early bishops going astray, or the Bishop of Corinth, who apparently had gone astray, or, or at least so it would seem. But the college cannot function integrally and validly without the presence of Peter, without the presence of the Bishop of Rome. So it was in the beginning, and so it is now. I remarked uh, a moment ago about how rapidly the Christian faith had spread during the church's first years. This was, as I say, especially true in places like Syria, Turkey, Egypt, North Africa, areas which dishearteningly have long since ceased to be Christian since the rise of uh, Islam in the 7th and 8th centuries. The church was also strong in Greece and in the Greek-speaking lands generally. And Greece, I should mention, was not just restricted to that peninsula that we see on the modern map or those little islands in the Aegean. It also spread out in a much broader way, at least in terms of culture and language. And little by little, but much more slowly, the Christian religion was also spreading into the Western or Latin-speaking parts of the Roman Empire. Everywhere there appeared similarities among the various communities, whether they were Greek-speaking or Latin-speaking. Most Christians came from the lower classes. There were few exceptions to this a nobleman here, a sister of a high Roman official there. But uh, those were exceptions which proved the rule. St. Paul liked to say, we don't come from the rich or the wise. We come from the foolish. We come from the despised. And although that may have been overstating it a little bit, the sociological pattern that we find is genuinely a lower class one. Most early Christians and this, I must say, when I first learned about it, came as something of a surprise to me. Most early Christians were city folk or town folk. They didn't dwell in the countryside. A clue to that, of course, is that our word pagan comes from the Latin word which means peasant or farmer. And it was only after a very long time, a relatively long time, I guess I should say, that the countryside was converted the cities came first. And there's a very clear reason for that when you stop to think about it. 
Jesus had told the apostles, and of course this continued to be the mandate, that they were to preach the good news first to the children of Israel, and then to others. So that you find the pattern as described in the Acts of the Apostles, for example, that the missionaries, the apostolic missionaries, went to the Jewish settlements. Now, the word diaspora, a fancy word, means simply that situation in which the Jews have unhappily found themselves for thousands of years, and that is scattered around outside the Holy Land, outside Palestine, in various centers from the time of the Babylonian captivity, three or four hundred years before Christ, to the years immediately after Christ's death and resurrection. So, for example, there was a Jewish ghetto in Corinth. There was a Jewish ghetto in Philippi, in Ephesus, and in Rome. And it was to these people that the missionaries first went. And they made some converts there. But when they had exhausted their pleas and their persuasiveness, they turned then to the Gentiles, but to the Gentiles who also were living in those same towns. So there is this, this rather simple and I think persuasive way to account for the fact that early Christianity was an urban phenomenon. They kept to themselves when performing their religious services. But they did not hesitate to mingle with other people in business or in social matters of one kind or another. They were very respectable, very law-abiding. There is no better description, I think, of the way in which they celebrated the most important act of their religion than that recorded by St. Justin about the year 150. If you allow me, I'd like to read it to you. And I think, if you're like me, you will find it hauntingly familiar. It could have been written yesterday, I think. No one may share the Eucharist with us unless he believes what we teach is true, unless he is washed in the regenerating waters of baptism for the remission of his sins, and unless he lives in accordance with the principles given us by Christ. We do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink. For we have been taught that as Jesus Christ, our Savior, became a man of flesh and blood by the power of the Word of God, so also the food that our flesh and blood assimilates for its nourishment becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of thanksgiving. The apostles in their recollections, which are called Gospels, handed down to us what Jesus commanded them to do. They tell us that he took bread, gave thanks, and said, do this in memory of me. This is my body. In the same way, he took the cup. He gave thanks and said, this is my blood. The Lord gave this command to them alone. Ever since then, we have constantly reminded one another of these things. The rich among us help the poor, and we are always united. For all that we receive, we praise the Creator of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all our members, whether they live in the city or in the outlying districts. The recollections of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. 
When the reader has finished, the president of the assembly, the bishop, speaks to us. He urges everyone to imitate the examples of virtue we have heard in the readings. Then we all stand up together and pray. On the conclusion of our prayer, bread and wine and water are brought forward. The president offers prayers and gives thanks to the best of his ability, and the people give their assent by saying, Amen. The Eucharist is distributed, everyone present communicates, and the deacons take it to those who are absent. The wealthy, if they wish, may make a contribution, and they themselves decide the amount. The collection is placed in the custody of the president, the bishop, who uses it to help the orphans and widows and all who, for any reason, are in distress, whether because they are sick, in prison, or away from home. In a word, he takes care of all who are in need. We hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day of the week, the day on which God put darkness and chaos to flight and created the world. And because on that same day, our Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. For he was crucified on Friday, and on Sunday he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them the things that we have passed on for your consideration. Despite the Christian's inoffensive, respectable, and law-abiding behavior, their reputation for gentleness, see how these Christians love one another was a very familiar pagan remark at the time, the spread of their creed began little by little to alarm the Roman government. The first persecution was the shortest. It was very much localized and thanks to movies like Ben-Hur I mentioned a moment ago with The Robe, and particularly the one called Quo Vadis, it's probably the most famous of all the persecutions. It is the one associated with the infamous mad emperor Nero. We have some historical information and we have a few guesses and a few uh, deductions which perhaps are not quite reliable, but let me just remind you of the story. A terrible fire broke out in the city of Rome in the year 67. The fire struck the working class districts first, as always seems to be the case. The housing was frail and made of wood, and in the midst of a dry season, the houses went up like match boxes. Allegedly, the emperor, when the fire was raging, came out on his balcony and looked at it with great delight. And that's where comes that famous saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, actually, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us he didn't fiddle. He said, well, there was no such thing as a violin in those days. But what he did do was to come out on the balcony, and he had in his hand a, what, the, what the ancients called a lute, which is a, in size from about my fingertips to the middle of my arm. And it was a stringed instrument. You go bling, 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 so, sort of like a terribly primitive guitar. And Nero fancied himself to be a poet. And so when he saw the fire going up, he decided that he would write a poem which would rival the greatest poetry of the ancient world, and that was the Iliad of Homer. Now the Iliad of Homer dealt with the Trojan War 
and climax with the capture of Troy by the Greeks and the burning of Troy. And so what you had was this very peculiar man standing on the palace balcony going bling, 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 and then emoting about Troy and, and thinking that the drivel that was coming from his lips was somehow worthy of the poetic tradition that had begun with Homer. Well, having done this, and everybody, a lot of people saw him, the word went out very quickly that Nero had had the fire set, that he was the arsonist, or had, had sent arsonists to set the fire so that he could go through this melodramatic recreation of the burning down of Troy. In order to offset that story, Nero and the government generally looked around for a scapegoat to find the most unpopular people in Rome upon whom to blame the fire. The most unpopular people were the Jews. Unhappily, that had so often been the case. But there was a subgroup that was even more unpopular that even the Jews didn't like, and that was the Christian community who were, so to speak, Jewish apostates. And so those were the people who were chosen to suffer for the sins of whoever set the fire, if indeed somebody did. We have, again, a priceless bit of, of information because the Roman author Tacitus speaks of the followers of Jesus Christus. He, he misspells Christ's name. He has an E where the I should be. This Jesus Christus was a Jewish carpenter who was executed during the time of Pontius Pilate in Palestine. That dates from about 67, 68 AD. A wonderful testimony to the fact that we know the Christians were there that early. Terrible things happened. Terrible and cruel punishment was exacted. But alas, that was only the beginning of a long and sad story. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.